THN is brought to you by Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. Listen nerds like you and Floating Bunny head creator Jonathan Sims. Head to Skelenaut.com today to see John's comics, shirts, art prints, and more. That's S-K-E-L-E-N-A-U-T dot com. Ah, cha-cha-cha-cha-cha! Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Casting from the Ziggurat at Omaha, oh. deep below the metro area, it's our pleasure to welcome you to episode 540! It's another milestone. huge milestone of an episode. Wow. I can't believe we finally got here. I want to thank my parents. I want to thank Satan. I want to thank uh, all the drugs. Honored to join <laughs> such other luminary 540th episodes of things. Yeah. It's a short list, yeah, right? right? Anyway, it's the Twitter Nerd Comic Book Podcast. Nerds, my name is Matt Palm. And I am the Internet's Joe Patrick. In this week's episode, we're reviewing 10 of Wednesday, August 14th's new comics, including Spotlight Reviews of Once and Future, number one, and The Watcher, number one. After that, we'll review even more of this week's new comics while we play the man in the chair for some spy-smashing intrigue during the ludicrous speed round. Then, it's down to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where we'll be trying out some acro yoga with some stretchy friends and acro yoga. about our must-read picks. For next week. Was it invented by Acro Year from the Micronauts? No, but I wish I would have made that joke. That's pretty good. Hey, I made it for you. I might have to plug him in there. <laughs> and finally, the two-headed tribunal has agreed to hear the case of one Chase Magnet as he defends the honor of Sam Raimi's magnum opus, Spider-Man 3, in a segment we like to call The Defenders. Donk, donk. It's all happening on this extremely judgmental episode, but first, we better talk about this week's Nerd News. Matt. Yes. DC has once again rescheduled Shazam number seven, which is now planned for a September 11th release 13 weeks after uh, 13 weeks later than originally solicited. And the eighth time this particular issue has been rescheduled. That means issues eight through 11 have also been rescheduled. DC's laid out a twice monthly plan that starts in September. These repeated schedule changes come as Johns's, as Jeff Johns' other solicited DC title, Doomsday Clock, is also being pushed back throughout the year. But that, I mean, that was never on time to begin again. with, right? From the jump almost. Yeah, Doomsday Clock was literally late from issue one. Originally solicited in March for May release, Doomsday Clock 11 is now scheduled for release in September. In addition... The Black Label series Three Jokers, which was introduced as a concept in 2015 and officially announced at last year's San Diego Comic-Con, still has yet to be solicited. However, artist Jason Fabok has shouldered at least a little of the blame for that delay in response to a fan inquiry on Twitter. Fabok said that he was halfway through drawing the series, indicating that a release date announcement was planned once production was further along. Are you buying that? I buy it, but I, that doesn't mean that all the scripts are written. Uh, no, I, I'm definitely not buying it because of that. Fabok said that the series, which will be three 46-page issues, presumably in Black Label's larger format, all right. is taking him twice as long to draw as any project he's ever done. Fine, but we've heard nothing about it, no hype, nothing. I'm. We'll get there. Meanwhile, Johns is currently working as showrunner on the live-action Stargirl show for DC Universe, which was... Hey, also pushed back from an originally anticipated 2019 debut to now sometime in 2020. Matt Baum, what the fuck is going on with Jeff Johns? Is he pissed about something? 
Is DC is, pissed at him? Is he upset? Did because they have a bad breakup? Or maybe his ego and Brian Michael Bendis's ego can't live in the same place. This started before Bendis. I mean, I, I don't like. disagree. I don't disagree. Something is going on. Yeah, like what the Jeff hell, Johns man? Jeff is not exactly famous for late projects. I mean, more and more as he got more responsibilities, now, I suppose. But like he got he. He stepped down from that executive position as chief creative officer. Right. Because he said and then it was, his output fell off the face of yeah, the planet. And he was supposed to like he was supposed to do all this stuff because he couldn't do it because he had the other job. And he was like, okay, I want to get back to writing comics. Like, I feel like something is up. Where are the comics? And here's the other thing. No one is talking about it. There's no comments. There's no I mean, there's these little like Jason Fabok coming see up. People like, mention it. Oh, I'm late. Sorry about that. But DC is not saying a word. Yeah, no. Johns isn't saying And why a word. would they? But like late comics happen, I get it. But like almost every couple of weeks, there is another post on Newsarama or whatever saying Shazam number whatever pushed back eight yeah. weeks. Or it's crazy. Even Bleeding Cool doesn't have any rumors on this, so I don't know. That's a good point. What's going on there? Yeah. And I, normally they're the first ones to say, "Well, we heard." Rah, 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 rah. Yeah. And then they later on they don't admit that it wasn't true. Like, uh, <laughs> sure, yeah, they don't care about facts. Nah, fuck that. They care about clicks, <laughs> just like us. Right. Uh, I just, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. I feel like everything Johns is involved in is super late. It was before Rebirth that they introduced the idea that there were three Jokers. So, I'm just hoping it's nothing personal. Like, I hope he's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm hoping that there isn't, like, a personal issue that is affecting him or affecting his work, and they are being polite and not outing anything. Sure. But this is definitely odd for a guy that you and I have followed for more than 20 years, years now. Years, a long time. Yeah. I don't know. It's weird. It, I mean, he was such a creative force at DC for so long to just have him disappear is crazy to me. Yeah. It's it's crazy town. I agree. And he's not. It's not like he's doing things for Marvel or independent. No, creator own. He's not doing he's, anything. Yeah, that's the weird part. I don't know. I don't get it. If anybody has any information, feel free to shoot it to us at our Twitter. Rich Johnson, hit me up. We won't tell anyone. We'll keep it very quiet. <laughs> Joe Patrick, in much better news, we're finally getting. The G.I. Joe movie you've always asked for. Yeah. The Chuckles standalone film. Give it to me, baby. <laughs> Give it to me. Paramount and Hasbro are prepping a G.I. Joe spinoff movie written by Ghost Protocol's Josh Applebaum and Andre Nimick. According to The Hollywood Reporter, Ghost Protocol kicked ass. Was that the most recent one? Y- no. Okay. No details on the reported film's plot were disclosed. However, it is described as an ensemble piece, which is good because it's goddamn G.I. Joe movie. And it will feature the character Chuckles, an undercover espionage character who debuted in 1987 as an action figure. And then in Marvel Comics, G.I. Joe number 60. He was also a key character in the 80s animated film. As I recall, Chuckles picks up a missile and throws it at a Cobra Hiss. Yeah. And it explodes. That's how it works. I'm not going to go into that. Who plays Chuckles? Uh, I'm bad at casting. Don't ask me. It's got to be somebody like good looking, but not too good looking because it's undercover. Mm. And is this going to be based off the the Cobra comic? Can you imagine? Please make the GI Joe Cobra movie. That Mike Costa, yeah, and Christos Gage and Antonio Fuso. That book is a masterpiece. That book was fantastic. And if there's no reason not to do it that way, it would be so good. It's so gritty and full of intrigue. Yeah, uh, casting, handsome, but not too handsome. I don't know. Everybody in Hollywood's handsome. Uh, He's got to be gritty, but he can, like, be the tough guy and be the good-looking dude. I feel like a Jeremy Renner type, not not Jeremy Renner. No, not Jeremy Renner. But no. 
but got some serious I get, charisma. I get kind of a fraction Hawkeye vibe off of Chuckles, you know, at least in his yeah. I gotta have some, stuff. I gotta have some charisma. Yeah, he's yeah. gotta be big and funny. Yeah, Jeremy Renner has no charisma. No, no charisma. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, and he's in a terrible band. The G uh, <laughs> so bad. <laughs> the GI Joe movies, we can agree, are not great. No, uh, they're awful, but they can only go up from here. The second one they has a charm to it. The second one has a charm to it, but no, that's it only doesn't. because of The Rock. No, it doesn't. The Rock elevates everything. It was pure garbage. Uh, Another G.I. Joe spinoff based on the character Snake Eyes is in development for an October 16th, 2023 actual release. Meh. No release date or title for the film are reported. It is so just get the people that did all the fight scenes for John Wick and make a Snake Eyes movie. I don't care if there's a plot. I don't care if it makes any sense at all. Okay. I want snake eyes. I want buckets of blood. I want that. Like do it and do it right. And you know, this is exactly why we're not getting that big transformers, GI Joe, Rom space night, micronauts mashup. Cause they were like, fuck that. Let's just spend less money and make a good GI Joe movie. Well, yeah, nobody cares about that. Nobody yeah. like it was such a dumb maybe idea. There, there was like some little bit of your, of your dinosaur brain that was tickled by the nostalgia of no, it. But no, like the idea of seeing mask in a movie. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's mm, fun. Maybe but by like, itself. I don't need a, a concept crossover between these properties. And quite honestly, I just don't. the idea of mask in a movie in modern day, is really stupid. Uh, <laughs> but excuse me, it's my mama mask. If they said it in 1984 and they were like <laughs> very aware of what they were yeah, doing, he's driving his, I'd be totally into it. Gullwing Trans Am. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be completely into it. <laughs> oh man, give me the Chuckles movie, you cowards. Next time, Chuckles, use the rocket launcher. In other comic news, writer J. Michael Straczynski and artist Mike Diodato Jr. They used to call him Mike Diodato Jr. That they dropped the Jr. I'm bringing it back. Oh yeah, he's just yeah. I forgot about that. They are reuniting to launch the Resistance. Unless uh, this is Mike Diodato's kid, we're talking about. Well, then it would be Mike Diodato the three. Mike Diodato Jr. Jr. Yeah, Mike Diodato Jr. Jr. Is <laughs> <laughs> sure how it works. <laughs> title of the episode. <laughs> The Resistance is a super a teen superhero title that will launch a shared universe for the new publisher, artist, writers, and artisans, AWA for short. I'm pretty sure that's like an American Wrestling Association thing. Yeah, too. every time I see it, I feel They're like it's something gonna else. going to get sued. <laughs> uh, this is the new publisher founded by former Marvel publisher, controversial figure, Bill Jemis. Here is a little bit about, uh, well, let me skip these quotes. Sure, no, I'll read you a little bit about it. The American Wrestling Association was an American <laughs> professional wrestling promotion based in Minneapolis, Minnesota that ran from 1960 to 1991. So There, it's defunct. Defunct. It's fine. Yeah, okay. Yeah. They, let the, they let the uh, domain name expire. Yeah. They don't have it anymore. Vern Gagne was there. He was, he was old school, man. Uh, Jemis, or Axel Alonso has gone to work for this publisher as well. Really? Uh, yeah. He says the resistance is the series that lays down the foundation for our shared universe. Uh, he was editor for Straczynski and Diodato's run on Amazing Spider-Man. Right. Alonso says that the series focuses on the survivors of a global disaster that kills hundreds of millions of people, but leaves some with superpowers. Born under a cloud, they must discover who they are, why they possess these superpowers, and what, if any, responsibility they bear for what happened. Are they harbingers of perils to come? Dot, dot, dot. Or Earth's last hope. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. my damn. Look, I don't want to sound straight up like internet troll. Okay. Why Why stop now? That, yeah, not that I haven't <laughs> before. But do they have an ironclad deal that Straczynski can't walk away from? I don't trust Look, him. I mean, I don't trust him. Sure, I get it. He doesn't finish stuff. Well, he did finish stuff, but uh -huh. 
Look, he had legit beef with Top Cow. I get that. So he did what he had to do. Fine. But did he have legit beef with DC? Did, the did he have legit did suffer. Beef? Did he have legit beef with Marvel or DC or any of the other projects that he wandered off on? He didn't. I mean, people quit books, man. That's I how understand it works. they quit books, but in the middle of their story, he didn't quit anything. He quit in, Fantastic Four without finishing. He quit Superman without he finishing. Did? Yes, he, he quit Fantastic Four without just finishing. Walked off. Yep. I don't. And Mark Wade came in and picked up the pieces. He got pissed and refused to write anything that was part of the Civil War stuff, and he just stopped. Oh, yep. But he had a run on Thor that was pretty good. Yeah. Did he finish it? Yes. <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, his run on Superman is terrible, mm-hmm. and he did walk off that project. Yeah, legit, just left. Oh, him and hanging. Wonder Woman as well. Just, I le- think he was writing both. Wasn't legit? He? Left him hanging. Yeah, I mean, look, the guy has written good things though. I'm not Rising, saying he Rising hasn't. Stars was great. I agree. Midnight Nation was great, and I know, but Midnight Nation and Rising Stars both ended up taking five years longer than they should have. Because to he had conflict with top cow they weren't Fine. paying him i get it i just don't trust the guy i get it too but i it, mean it's hard for me to get invested in him anymore he's a creator with big ideas he is and he's also a creator that's delivered some of the worst ideas yeah i've ever seen added to the spider-man mythos yep so you know yeah it's What's, hard to get excited about it i'm yeah. not i'm not gonna say i'm like pumped but this seems like a pretty big swing for a, for Bill Jemis, who has been absent from comics for who knows how long. Yeah, and Axel Alonso, that's an exciting name. And Diodato is like feeling, he's got his groove back yeah, now Diodato's that he's making back. his, uh, you know, now that he's doing Berserker Unbound, he seems to have a wellspring of creativity. So I hope the best. I just don't trust the guy. And it's hard for me to get excited or invested. I hear you. you I know? hear you. But it will be interesting to see this company develop. Fool me once. And you know, and you fooled, fooled me twice. We get it. You can't fool me again. <laughs> that's how it works. George W. Bush said that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, you know, it, companies that come out of the gate promising this like shared universe. Yeah. You know, it always sounds fun. Mm-hmm. You know, Lion Forge with their Catalyst Prime. And a lot of those books were good. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Valiant, of course, is the probably the best example. Right. Uh, but can they deliver? It's hard. Can they deliver? It's difficult. Humanoids is trying to get it started right now with kind of mixed results. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, so we'll see. We'll, we'll see. certainly see. I, I want it to be good. I just don't trust JMS anymore. I feel you. That is your nerd news for the week, but I'm sure we missed plenty of other stories while finishing writing the end of the last two projects JMS didn't finish on our JMS Endings fan fiction blog, which seems to get homoerotic at every turn. That's on you. It's ridiculous. That's on you. So hit us up on the THN Forum's big news section, or better yet, tune in to Cover to Cover. We do it live every Saturday. We broadcast on our Facebook page from 11 to 12 noon mm. Central Standard Time. It's a new time slot. What it's better twist. for everybody. We love it. It's like AM Talk Radio, but it's for nerds with much more wrestling talk. Yeah! So call us at 402-819-4894 or click the Call Now button on our Facebook page. If you cannot be there live, you can leave us a message at that phone number or you can send an MP3 to 200nerd at gmail.com. Do not forget to tell us your name. Yeah, please. Leave a message. And I'm not saying give me your full name and phone number and everything, but just... Hey, this is Ricky. This is Stinky. Hey. Yeah, you know, Stinky. <laughs> Fan favorite caller, Stinky. Fort McGillicuddy, you know, or whatever. 
It's spotlight review time in the ziggurat where Matt and I put on our matching Cerebro helmets and focus our telepathic abilities on two of this week's comics. Matt, is it tingling for you? Mine is tingling. That means it's working. Oh, good. My review this week goes to The Watcher, number one from Zinescope, story by Ralph Tedesco with a script by Victoria Rao and art by, what was the name? Julius Abrera. It was 40 pages for $5.99. Here's your solicit. Disturbia meets The Conjuring in this new three-issue horror thriller from Xenoscope. A Catholic deacon and his family relocate to a suburban New England home that's long been rumored to be haunted by an evil entity. As his teenage daughter Erica begins to adjust to her new life, her ongoing bouts with sleep paralysis worsen, and she begins to wonder if there really is a presence inside the home. When two of Erica's high school friends are brutally murdered. Spoiler alert. Oh no, I guess two do get murdered. I was gonna <laughs> not the two I was thinking. <laughs> she starts to suspect the creepy neighbor who she's seen watching her through his window. Your suggested soundtrack for this one is the Chopping Mall original soundtrack. I'll have a YouTube link to that. There's also a kick-ass vinyl edition that I want to say Wax Tracks released, and it's on pink vinyl. Super cool. And it's a great fucking soundtrack. Now, we don't review a lot of Xenoscope titles on the show, mostly due to the cheesecake nature of the storytelling. Yeah. Cheesecake is a word for busty, butsy ladies in skimpy clothes, which has been a mainstay of their twisted fairy tales for as long as I can remember. Recently, Zinescope has stepped into the world of fantasy here and more mainstream horror, so I figured it was time to give him another shot. Tedesco and Rao write this teen horror with a, with a decidedly 80s slasher bend that reminded me less of Disturbia or The Conjuring and more of the early Nightmare on Elm Street films, but with decidedly less skin than old slasher flicks or most Xenoscope stories for that matter. Mm, yes. The story relies on some basic horror tropes, religious parents, bad influence friend, creepy neighbor, main character haunted by nightmares, etc. It's fine for a fairly generic horror story that takes a surprisingly gory turn later in the book. Tedesco and Rao are reaching for a almost Avatar light feel with the story. Avatar the publisher, not Avatar the movie. Yes, Avatar the publisher. Thank you. Had this been an Avatar book, it would have featured more nudity and even more gore, Nobody I'm sure. Nobody fucks anything with their tails in this. <laughs> it's true. But he still injects some very adult language that kind of left me wondering, why not? This is an adult book. Why yeah, not I mean, go if it's R-rated, adult? why isn't it R-rated? Exactly. The dialogue was fine, and again, it sounded like kids in an old slasher film urging each other to try weed or have sex. There were some choices that didn't work, like having mom bring three junior, maybe senior high school girls cocoa to their slumber party, which, unless mom is insane, and that didn't seem to be the case here, seems like a pretty 1950s move I mean, to she's me. super religious. I Guess. It's like super old fashioned. But she also wasn't nuts. The art by Cabrera was similar to the Xenoscope house style, I recognize. And while it wasn't bad, there were some issues. The students looked like 25 year olds with the same faces. The art had a lot of issues. Although, if they were going for a meta late 80s slasher vibe, maybe that was intended that they looked older than they were. I kind of doubt it, though. There were some odd perspectives here, and they really distracted from some of the creepier moments. While I'm happy to see Xenoscope stepping away from their cheesecake roots, I can't call Watcher a win, but more of a throwback horror comic that would have succeeded had it been a lot more self-aware. If you're going to do this kind of like cheeseball 80 slasher, lean into it, and I would have been way more on board. I can only give this a skim it. Excuse me one second, I'm just calling up the comic again so that I can 
The art is decent. It, it, it's definitely yeah. like uh, it's it's competent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got a lot of like technical things that I caught, like uh, like the foreshortening of of characters' limbs and like. Right. There's a scene. There's some point of view stuff that's definitely lacking. Stuff. There's a scene when the um, the deacon and his wife are are sitting in bed talking before going to sleep. I know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, apparently, she th- he thinks she's making a move on him, and he's like, "Now, now, dear, not yeah, tonight." That did not work uh, at all. And then it's just like a hand on his chest, and he's like, "Whoa, there, <laughs> hornbag! <laughs> yeah. Settle down, he's down now. settle down, slutty pants, you dog!" <laughs> uh, but then he's like, he points up at the cross above their bed to say something. Yeah, he's like, "And it is the feast of Saint Leo," and it's like. That's not where he's looking. That's not where his hand is pointing. Yeah. That's not where that piece of matter exists well, in was, this world. They were sort of doing a top-down yeah, shot. Yeah, it was it did not work. Yeah. Sort um, of like you you were God looking at them. That, you know? I don't know about that. Yeah. But um like <laughs> you mentioned it before, all of the girls had exactly the same face. They did. Even the black girl. Even the black girl. <laughs> yeah. Uh so the only thing to differentiate them was hair and skin tone because they're also wearing the same thing because yes. they're Catholic schoolgirls. Right. Um I thought that the parents were like laughably religious like well that's my point like they they seemed competent but they were written like maybe they were insane but they didn't give you any hints that they were fucking insane you know yeah yeah (laughs) like there was always something in like old 80s slasher movies like the people under the stairs like they were very exaggerated characters oh we seem like normal suburban people their characteristics were tick that we have that makes us crazy like that wasn't there that's kind of that's a good point like you know what i mean like their their characteristics are exaggerated right in a way that makes them seem unreal right um but when you put it in the but also not creepy when you put it in the context of like a a horror movie like that then yeah i get it right um so yeah i mean i'm giving it a skim it because like this is the first time i looked at a xenoscope book and didn't like immediately have my eyes roll out of my head yeah i will say no one was wearing short shorts so short their butt hung out while they were fighting (laughs) demons or anything you know i mean Uh, i mean there's a lot to unpack there's like a demon there's maybe a serial killer i don't know what's uh, the neighbor's gonna turn out to be the hero you know yeah yeah for sure you know it's so obvious (laughs) it's so fucking obvious yeah i'll give it a skim it as well i mean i think it's a good effort joe patrick your turn take it away all right Mm, let me close these windows once and future yeah. <laughs> I'm reviewing Once in Future, number one, from Boom Studios, written by Kieran Gillen, with art by Dan Mora, colors by Tamara Bonvillain. It's 32 pages for $3.99, and here is your solicit. When a group of nationalists use an ancient artifact to bring a villain from Arthurian myth back from the dead, spoiler alert, it's Arthur, to gain power, ex monster hunter Bridget. Bridget? Bridget. Bridget McGuire. It doesn't sound like uh, the sort of last name that would be a Brigitte, but all right. Whatever. Brigitte McGuire escapes her Don't retirement. Put Brigitte in a box. Come on. <laughs> she escapes her retirement home and pulls her unsuspecting grandson, Duncan, a museum curator, into a world of magic and mysticism to defeat a legendary threat. Uh, yada, 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 yada. The complicated. Uh, explore the mysteries of the past, the complicated truths of our history, and the power of family to save the day, especially if that family has secret bunkers of ancient weapons and decades of experience hunting the greatest monsters in Britain's history. Sort of like where you grew up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. like Tabor, Iowa, baby. Yeah. Kieran Gillen is a writer that I admit I sometimes struggle with. I've loved a lot of his work at Marvel, but his independent titles like Phonogram and The Wicked and the Divine just never really spoke to me. 
Here, he dives headfirst into a genre I love, Monster Hunters. Supernatural, Buffy, give it to me. I want it all yeah. the time. Yeah. Monster Hunter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Monster Hunter. Sure. the game. Yeah. <laughs> The, the whole, like, family full of hunters thing is definitely well-worn territory, but Gillen puts a nice spin on it. What if Buffy was able to settle down and have a family and made it to old age? Gillen's dialogue is snappy and clever. Are snappy and clever the same thing? I mean, no. Like, All right. Clever is, like, you know, like... Witty. Yeah, like yeah. smart and whatever. But this is, like, snappy and short and good yeah. and boom, boom, you know. Yeah. Gilmore Girls shit. There you go. Yeah. I instantly fell in love with Gran... With her sharp wit and determination, Duncan is a lovable goon scrambling to catch up to these impossible revelations. Though the script offers plenty of talking heads and exposition, Gillen moves the story at a nice pace, keeping the reader interested. Dan Mora's art is incredible in this issue. He's got a sharp, angular line that makes even mundane things like a bunch of geriatrics watching TV or a first date gone wrong look exciting. His characters are all very distinctive with varied bone structures and body types, and his facial expressions are great. I was also really impressed by his storytelling here. If you were to remove all of the word balloons from each page, aside from missing some exposition, you'd still get a pretty good sense of what's happening in the story. Tamara Bonvillain's subtle colors are a key reason why this issue looks so great. The scene with Duncan and his gran in the woods at twilight was especially striking with this nice, subtle, like, pinkish purple uh, sky. It was beautiful. Once in Future plays on familiar genre tropes and represents them in a fun and exciting way. I'm definitely looking forward to the rest of this series. I'm giving it a buy it. Yeah, Dan Mora is one of those artists that doesn't get enough credit because he doesn't... He's really good. He's not like exceptionally flashy in his style, but what he does is so solid in his storytelling. Yeah. The guy is just amazing, and I thought he was great here. We talked about this when he was doing the first few issues of the new Buffy. Yeah. Like, his likenesses were effortless. Right. And they didn't look like he, yeah, like, traced he anybody's face. Sarah Michelle Gellar, but it was obviously Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah. You're like, you knew exactly who you the were supposed to be looking guy. at. This was devoid of that over-preciousness that I've gotten from a lot of Gillen stuff recently. Yep. I appreciate that. I don't... I just can't hang with it. It works for some people. It's just not my I thing. I get it. I get it. And this was a lot more action-driven and plot-driven, and I dug it, and it's back to what I like about Kieran Gillen. I'm giving it a buy it as well. So that is a double skim it for The Watcher number one and a double buy it for Once and Future number one. We'll post our written reviews over at 2 at nerd.com so they will haunt the creators until such time as our Russian masters translate the whole internet into Cyrillic. Coming soon. <laughs> but we need to know what you nerds thought of these comics too so call us this weekend on THN cover to cover at it's new time 11am to noon central standard time Disable the cameras. You got six seconds to make it down that hallway before the loop resets, starting now. Oh, hey, nerds. Matt and I are playing the man in the chair and helping beloved 80s Nickelodeon star and British super agent Danger Mouse gather proof of Jeffrey Epstein's death at the hands of none other than Soviet super soldier Ursa Major as part of our secret Russian master's plan to keep him quiet. Okay, there's two guards about to change shift. Three, two, go. Go now. 
We had to recruit Danger Mouse because we're not ready to trust any of our American assets at this time. I'm taking the laser grid offline now. Oh, Jesus. DM, get out of there. You've been made. All right, this is officially an extraction. Don't worry, DM. We'll get you out of there. There's a window on the next floor. You'll need to get upstairs and jump to your kick-ass flying card, the Mark III. It's so cool. Waiting outside while we review eight more of this Wednesday's new comics during the Ludicrous Speed Round. Ludicrous Speed, go! Absolute Carnage Scream one-shot from Marvel. Carnage is coming for the Marvel U with an army of zombie symbiotes, and of course... He's bringing Scream with him! Cullen Bunn writes the return of several female Scream-adjacent characters, including the corpse of the original Donna Diego, Patricia Robertson, who was She-Venom for a bit when a clone got loose in the North Pole back in 04, and Andrea Benton, a.k.a. Mania, who's wearing the Hellmark she inherited from her time as Venom wow. after Eddie Brock battled Mephisto recently in Las Vegas. No story left behind. <laughs> <laughs> Gerardo Sandoval is channeling 90s Planet of the Symbiotes pencilers to huge success in this ridiculous Walking Dead meets Venom mashup. It was way more fun than it has any business being. I can't believe I'm saying this. It's a buy it. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it because Scream is getting her own ongoing well, series. I do not need that. <laughs> White Trees, number one from Image. Fantasy dicks! Yeah! That was the joke I made when we talked about this book on last week's show, and don't get me wrong, we got them. But White Trees is a thoughtfully crafted story that takes place in a fully realized fantasy world. The characters are well-defined and compelling, and when the adult content does fire up, it's a logical extension of the story that's being told. Chris Anka's art and character designs, along with Matt Wilson's beautiful watercolor palette, are incredibly impressive, and I certainly don't want to downplay their importance to the whole package, but I am so impressed with Chip Zdarsky's evolution as a writer. If you had told me 10 years ago that the guy who makes up prison funnies would become one of the most exciting talents on the stand, I, I know, would have right? said you were crazy. It's bizarre. It's totally bizarre. White Trees number one is truly excellent. I'm giving it a huge buy it. Thank you for not making a joke about stuff when I said package. There's no porn like gay porn. <laughs> <laughs> Omni number one from Humanoids. The Humanoid Superhero You continues to expand with this book written by Devin Grayson. Yeah. A name you don't see too often these days who, by the way, replaced Cheryl Lynn Eaton for unexplained reasons. We don't know. We meet a young doctor without borders, Celia Cobina, who, during the ignition that set off Peep's powers in the Humanoids You, gained multi-level super intelligence and the ability to gently aid those around her with some form of like astral telepathy. It's a very cool power set and artist Althea Martinez, who replaced Aurelia Christiana, again, for unexplained reasons, <laughs> does a great job illustrating the power in action. Grayson's story continues a very real-world feel of the Humanoids U, placing Celia in an African hospital dealing with warlords and innocents injured in conflict. We meet a friend who, who can face himself and solid matter, and Celia's close friend May rounds out the cast. I loved her. Omni number one is a great first issue, featuring a strong female character that's less interested in being a hero than she is in just helping people, sometimes for, to her own personal detriment. I'm giving this a buy it. It was really good. It looks good. Now, why they replaced the whole creative team, I have no clue. Shit happens. Super weird. Yeah. Serious Creatures, number one from Bounce House. 
Small press writer, artist Tony McMillan, creator of Lumen, which I talked about on the show a few oh, weeks back. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's back with a much more grounded tale about a young teen obsessed with movie monsters and special effects. McMillan does a great job bringing you into Bobby Feckle's life. That's a great name. Yeah. And the summer he spent in Cape Cod during the filming of Finn, a.k.a. Jaws. His dreamlike art really helps sell the idea that this story is a memory, and he has a real knack for creative layouts and storytelling. What was the dolphin with rabies from One Crazy... Oh, foam. Foam, yeah. (laughs) From One Crazy Summer. (laughs) Absolutely give Serious Creatures a shot. I'm going to put a link to Tony's site in the show notes, giving this a buy it. Conan Exodus, number one from Marvel. At this point, I think it's safe to call Isad Ribic a modern master, following the footsteps of Frank Frazetta, and he is doing some of his most breathtaking work to date here. Each page could be a massive painting that I would hang above my massive hearth to gaze at while sipping brandy nude on my saber-toothed tiger rug. That said, because I'm relaxing, you asshole. That said, if you're going to do a truly silent story, don't give me a few characters speaking in runes. What is the goddamn point? Still, this is an absolute masterpiece of modern fantasy art, and Conan Exodus gets a buy it. I cannot believe how beautiful this book uh, is. Listen, you cannot tell me that Assad Ribic does not paint some whack-ass faces. Have you seen some of the facial expressions in this book? Dude, I totally disagree. There's one scene in particular, and it was my favorite scene in the book, and it's young Conan, and he's like over, like, he's tucked into like a rock, and he's got a fire burning, and the rock is sort of pink and blue around it. It is stunning. I'm not saying the book's the man not beautiful. Is incredible. I'm not saying the book's not beautiful, but... Some of the, like, when he has to draw a character smiling or happy, it looks very silly. I'm going to throw something at your head. Titans burning rage! I dare you to look at the cover of Fantastic Four number uh, 11 with the kids we're talking on space about bikes. Now. He we're, painted it. We're talking no, about It came now. out like two months ago. Fine. Yeah. Whatever. This is better. Titans burning rage number one from DC. <laughs> Shut up! It seemed like DC was really putting their best foot forward with these Walmart exclusives, putting their top creators on them in the hopes of bringing comics to the masses. Well, they really half-assed it for this one. Dan Jurgens, an old-school writer I could usually tolerate, delivers a terrible story. Hey, he did some really good Superman before he got replaced. Yeah, like I said, it was really he's good. a writer I can usually tolerate. I never tolerated him, and I liked that Superman. So. <laughs> this features a kind of mashup version of the Titans that's some weird cross between their more serious comic book version and their idiotic cartoon counterparts from Teen Titans Go, which I love. Scott Eaton's art feels rushed and sloppy. I hope this had some great reprints in it when it was on the shelves because Titans Burning Rage does not stand on its own. I'm giving it a leave it. I'm going to say that Titans in Walmart is probably a bad idea because the only way those kids are going to know them are the cartoon characters. And this isn't going to do shit for them. Well, I mean, that was kind of the point of these books. Eh. Age of Conan, Valeria, number one from Marvel, two Conan books in one week. That's how I do. The Conan Marvel, you can't be stopped. And this time, Meredith Finch is writing the adventures of the best damn-looking pirate in Aquilonia, Valeria. Val is a take-no-smack kind of gal on a quest to become a badass swordswoman by fighting anyone deemed to be a fellow badass sword fighter on a quest to find the guy that killed her brother Indigo Montoya style. Wow. The script is good enough, not too packed of old-timey dialogue to become annoying and even a little lighthearted at times. The art by Aneki, one name, is impressive but 
does have some weird perspective, especially on the one splash page the artist decided to take in the book. It's like, if you can't do it, don't do it. <laughs> Valeria number one is a good first issue that gives us some background, explains our heroine's mission, but other than that, I can't say it was must-read Conan stuff, giving it a skimming. Okay. Gwenpool Strikes Back from Marvel. I've come to appreciate Gwenpool in team oh, books. Like, stop it. Look, you stop it. No. You haven't read them. You don't know what you're talking I about. I stop it. Can't be stopped. I liked her in team books like the recent West Coast Avengers revival. That was good. All but right. this solo outing is so mind-numbingly bizarre that I had a hard time keeping track of what was happening. Part of that's by design. Leah Williams' fourth wall obliterating script is hyper self-aware and way too meta for its own damn good. The art is fantastic, I will say. I love David Baldion's work. Yeah, David Baldion's really good. I want to like Gwenpool. I don't. I, I, I think she's got some fun potential, and this issue does have some fun moments. I just don't know if this is a great way forward for the character. Gwenpool Strikes Back number one gets a skin it. You know what I have to say to Gwenpool number one? Tell me. Blarg! That is your ludicrous speed round, and Blarg is the sound of a giant space whale worm thing vomiting up the contents of his tummy, as seen in the pages of Sea of Stars, number two. There ain't no sound in space. This onomatopoeia of the week was submitted by Ryan Hebrews Mount via the Twitters. If you want to submit an onomatopoeia of the week, you can puke it all over any of our social media accounts, or you can send an email to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. But remember, in space, no one can hear you puke. <laughs> Nerds, I am super excited to inform you that we once again have someone dumb enough to sponsor this show. What a fool. His name is Jonathan Sims. I mean, what a great guy. <laughs> You've heard us talk about him. He's the creator of Floating Bunnyhead Comic Books and the forthcoming official THN t-shirt. We did it, you guys. It's all happening. We did it. You can check out John's shop at Skelenaut.com for Snack Attack, the coloring book. It's got a bunch of food-based monsters. It's gross and it's awesome. Sounds disgusting. Yeah. He's got t-shirts. He's got comics. He's got enamel pins like his brand spanking new raptor tail grab pin, which is available now. It's a cartoon velociraptor with a backwards ball cap doing a tail grab on a skateboard. Holy, Holy shit. shit! He's got a magnificent, flowing, lush beard. He sells great art prints, t-shirts. I said that. Comics. Beard is not for sale. I said that too. Beard not for sale. <laughs> Step off, you guys. Creepos. Joe Patrick, how do I spell Skelenaut? Skelenaut is spelled S-K-E-L-E-N-A-U-T-D-O-T-C-O-M. Thank you. Skelenaut.com. Appreciate that last part. That was good. Thank you. Thanks, John. We appreciate your sponsorship. Huge thanks. Go throw money at John. He's a great guy. He's throwing money at us. We couldn't appreciate that more. And watch for the upcoming official THN t-shirt news. Oh, my God. This week in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, we are joined by mighty Marvel Micronaut Acro Year, who will be balancing Joe and I in the air with his powerful elephantine trunk feet. He's got those weird, like, big bang, you know, like circular feet. Yeah, yeah. And we are going to strike some amazing acro yoga poses and discuss our must-read picks for next week. Joe Patrick, you're so flexible and sexy. Why don't you go first? Yeah, I feel so relaxed. Right? My pick is Pearl number 12 from DC Comics, Jinx World, not an imprint, written by Brian Michael Bendis. <laughs> 
with art by Michael Gatos. It's 32 pages for $3.99. Here's your solicit. It's the wild end of this romantic Yakuza epic from the creators of Jessica Jones. Tying up all the loose ends for now, Pearl Tanaka confronts her past and her future. Will she choose the path of the artist or the killer? Which is her natural way? Don't miss this stunning multimedia experience huh? from artist Michael Gatos, plus an exclusive look at new Jinx World projects coming soon. Is he going to text you while you read it? How's this I multimedia? Think it comes, I think it comes with a cassette tape like that one issue of Three Geeks a from the early tape? 2000s. Seriously? Don't you remember that comic? I do, I do, I do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. My pick for next week is Bad Reception, number one from Aftershock. It's written and drawn by Juan Doe. He's writing it too, huh? That's his real name. It's 32 pages for $3.99. I bet that's not his real name. Here is your solicit. It's the celebrity wedding of the century set in an undisclosed remote location with no access to Wi-Fi, cell phone reception, or the outside world. But the dream wedding becomes a nightmare when one by one, the guests are brutally slaughtered. It's written like that. By a serial killer who brands his victims with a hashtag. Why is it? Hyphenated. Slaughtered. I, I text, it's, there's this hyphen in the middle. I don't know. Yeah, weird. Bad Reception is a searing horror story that doubles as a topical, satirical critique on society's obsession with technology, social media, and the cult of celebrity. Written and drawn by Aftershock's very own Wando. He did Dark Ark. He did American Monster. Again, with the hyphen. He, lies, he just loves those hyphens, man. And World Reader. Wando is super... Talented yeah. as an artist. We yeah, very good. Loved Dark Ark. I think loved didn't it. Cullen Bunn write Dark Ark? Del Cullen Bunn wrote it. Wando drew it. Yeah. So freaking yep. good. Yep. And uh, I'm curious to see how he does writing. Yeah, sounds see good. See what you got. The THN trade of the week goes to Spencer and Locke, volume two, trade paperback from Action Lab. Danger Zone. It's this, is, that is an imprint. Yeah, Danger Zone's an imprint. Yeah. It's written by David Pippos. Pippos or Pippos? And I think it's. Action Lab Danger Zone. Yep, they're very good. <laughs> you gotta do it. Yeah, I mean, come you on. did it right. <laughs> it's got art by Jorge Santiago Jr. It's 128 pages for $14.99. Here is your solicit. Continuing the Ringo Award nominated series, Volume 2 pits burned out Detective Locke and his imaginary panther Spencer against their deadliest foe yet. Roach Riley, Whoa. a scarred former soldier transformed into an acolyte of violence and terror. Just like me. Yep. Outgunned and outmatched, can Spencer and Locke overcome their inner demons to stop this madman's rampage? Or will their partnership become the latest casualty on Roach's hit list? What is this? This is, sounds bonkers. So <laughs> I reviewed Spencer and Locke number one on the okay. show years ago. Yes. Uh, it's like, what if Calvin and Hobbes, right. what if Calvin grew up and became a gritty detective, right, homicide right, right. detective? And like had an imaginary. And Hobbes character. was still there talking yeah, to him. That's right. Yeah. It's like Calvin and Hobbes as like. Uh, homicide life on the streets. Yeah, totally. It's great. It's so great. Awesome. David uh, David Pippos, the writer, reached out to us on Twitter. He's like, hey, I got a new thing coming out. I'm going to talk about that hopefully next week. Uh, cool. And yeah, he's... Let's interview him. Copy Let's interview too. this guy. Yeah, I'm going to try to get him. Let's do it. Let's interview him. Yeah. These are just a few of the comics hitting the new shelves at your LCS next week, but we want to hear about all of the imaginary cat cop comics you're excited to read. <laughs> Head to the THN forums and let us know what you're reading, but also tell us what you want us to review on the show. And don't forget to pre-order all of your picks every week. So the imaginary cat cops might come for you. Imaginary cat cops. Man. Imaginary cat cops. That's it's already a title. Yeah, it's a better title. <laughs> oh my god. That's a better title than <laughs> No, I mean for, like a, for a comic junior. book. Imaginary cat cops. <laughs>
In the criminal comic book justice system, the average nerd has many opinions, but those who think they have a cause worth fighting for may appear in front of the two-headed tribunal to plead their case in a segment we call The Defenders. Today on The Defenders, Chase Magnet, loyal listener and friend of the show, has been called in front of the tribunal to defend Spider-Man 3, Sam Raimi's final Spider-Man film from 2007. Here's how some background for you. Not too long ago, I freaked out because too many people were putting Spider-Man 3 on lists of Spider-Man movies above <laughs> the most recent Spider-Man film. And I think that's ridiculous. Now, right. Chase Magnet, listen, it's not your time to argue. I'm just saying, you get up here <laughs> and please present your case to the tribunal. All right. So I think when we talk about superhero movies, we often have two conversations simultaneously. So I want to distinguish my defense in two halves. Oh, boy. The first half being defending it as a movie, like purely as, hey, I think this is a pretty all right piece of cinema. And the second half being it's a Spider-Man movie in that it reflects who Spider-Man is, what this character means, so on and so forth. So in the first half, I understand more of the gripes because there are flaws in Spider-Man 3. It's a super compressed script. You can feel producers and Sony getting involved uh, to say that Venom is shoehorned is a bit of an understatement. The flip side of which is that I find it to be one of the most interesting Spider-Man movies, primarily because it's engaging with cinematic language that we don't see repeated ad nauseum every year. The newest Spider-Man movies, the amazing Spider-Man movies, generally track like a generic action movie. Almost every installment in the MCU reads as being essentially the same thing as the last one. Now there are notable exceptions, but ultimately the, uh, the current Spider-Man movies don't stand out. Whereas the Raimi movies are working at a very specific tone and with a very specific language. Watching those first two, as much as we'd like to talk about loving Spider-Man two, it's essentially doing the same thing that Spider-Man three does, which is engaging with camp, engaging with, really odd but confident shifts in tone. Uh, and I think there's no better example than that than emo Spider-Man. The short scene where he's walking down the street, hitting on women, being a turd, is pretty much perfect. It's what a nerd's idea of what being cool is. And it fits perfectly within the Raimi-verse and the language that he's using. And it's unlike anything else we see. I think that once we look past some of the editing flaws in the movie... It's a really standout, unique bit of the superhero genre. Uh, I'd rather watch it than 90% of MCU fare, mainly because it engages me in a way that's interesting more than once to watch. Now, moving on order, from that. Order, 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 real I think, quick. I think, Point of order. 90%? Hey, hey, you'll have your turn. <laughs> Black Panther and Ragnarok are about it. Um, but anyways, moving on. Uh, the main reason I'll defend Spider-Man 3 isn't just that it's an interesting movie and that I'd rather rewatch it than most other superhero movies. It's that it's a great Spider-Man movie. Now, what it gets is that Peter Parker is a deeply flawed and blue collar sort of character. And that's something that I think has been lost. And frankly, both Spider-Man comics and Spider-Man movies largely since that time, uh, Zdarsky and a couple other writers have gotten it, but no other movies gotten it since Raimi. Uh, it's a movie that looks at Peter Parker and says, here is a schlub, and it really embraces that. As much as I love some of the more modern performances, they all kind of assume that Spider-Man should be Superman. They're all movies that say, here's a guy who's excellent. Here's a guy who you should love no matter what, and that's not Spider-Man. 
Spider-Man is the inspirational hero because ultimately he's the guy that picks himself up off the ground and that we can relate to, who's overwhelmed by small things like student debt, like caring for family and all these other issues. And Spider-Man 3 is a movie about forgiveness. It's a movie about really screwing up, about doing incredibly dumb things and then getting to try again. Not necessarily getting second chances because some things you break and you don't get a fix. But it's about that blue-collar sensibility, about failing, falling down, looking like a fool, and standing back up, and learning to forgive others. Uh, honestly, the Tom Hardy performance in that movie is great within the what Norman uh, – sorry, excuse me – William Defoe and Alfred Molina laid out before him. Uh, and wait, 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 time it, out. It, it does wait, something really spectacular. Uh, do you mean Topher Grace or – No, no, I'm talking about uh, – Not Tom Hardy. Which God character? Damn, not Tom Hardy. The Sandman's performance? Yeah. Oh. Thomas Hayden Church. Thomas Hayden Church. We have we have discovered exactly how tired I am on a Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we no, can discount Thomas your Hayden entire Church. argument. That's the good news. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Making oh. a typo actually makes val arguments invalid. That's right. From the That's how it works on the internet now. <laughs> All I have to do is be like, I think but you no, missed no, a it's, semicolon, dude. It's a, it's a really thematic, it's a thematically whole movie that deals with the Spider-Man that I recognize, the Spider-Man that I've seen since Ditko and Ramada, and the one that makes Marvel Marvel, the one that underlines that human beings are screwed up, and frankly, in some ways, the flaws of the movie makes reminds me of the comics. And so far as when we look at our modern Straczynski and slot sorts of runs, it's a flawed, imperfect, but occasionally incredible sort of story where the great moments are really great. And they far exceed anything I've seen from a Spider-Man movie since. Speaking purely in live action because Into the Spider-Verse is one of the best superhero movies ever made. Okay. Now, we have your argument. I'd like to cross-examine a little bit here. I just watched okay. it again the other night. So did Joe. Yep. And the things that I remember so hating, like the, the you know, emo Spider-Man and stuff like that. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. They weren't that bad in the sense. And Casey watched it with me. And she was like, why is he acting like this? And I'm like, he's acting like this because he's a nerd. And he thinks that's just what yeah. tough guys and cool people do. And I didn't even have that big of a problem with those scenes. I had way more of a problem with the fact that this Peter Parker that they set up to go bad started before Venom even came into the picture. He gets excited because people start to like him, and the first thing he does is invite his girlfriend to come watch him kiss Gwen Stacy on stage. Like, is he an that wasn't, idiot? That wasn't part of him going bad, though. That yeah. was him being an idiot. But that was part of his ego. Well, like, sure, but, yeah, but, but that was Parker's... just part of his failings as a but, person. So he's a moron. Can I pose a sure. question on that? Sure. Which is, which is why I distinguish between the two. I think, I think maybe Venom encourages, but in the same way that, like, you know, and, and maybe a more grounded movie, alcohol encourages or sure. money encourages. Yeah, like, it enhances really what's the already that, there. That this guy is deeply flawed. I'm sure Peter Parker is. And his also, flaws. he didn't know that Gwen was gonna. They didn't. He didn't know that that kiss was gonna happen. He said, "Lay he one on really me." Go for it, it because the crowd like, was pushing for it. He says, "Lay one on me." Yes, they'll love it. The crowd was pushing <laughs> yeah. for it. I think and so my he Peter gave Parker says, "That's inappropriate. I'm not going to do that." <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> not to mention the performances were so lousy. Oh, I don't agree. In a way that Sam Raimi admits he hammed up because he was so angry. <sighs> 
that they made him introduce the Venom character that he did not want to do. Now, I'm like going to... You can see Sam Raimi throwing a fit in the movie. I'm going to disagree with you here. I know this is Chase's argument to make, and I agree that Topher Grace up and down is awful I would argue in this movie. Topher Grace did a much better job delivering some of those shitty lines than... Toby Maguire did. I think I, I was like legit impressed at Kirsten Dunst, who I always considered the worst oh, actor God, in these movies. No, she's terrible. No, I thought she's her performance terrible. was good. Like the way she showed the, the way she like uh, portrayed like the hurt and the betrayal she was feeling. Like, oh, Peter, and what happened? That's to not you? how it was. That's not how <laughs> it was. Terrible. Uh, Rosemary Harris as Aunt May was incredible. Rosemary Harris was very good. I don't have a problem. And with I'm her. like, Rosemary I'm, Harris is the best Aunt May. Yes, and I mean, and I'm and I'm happy to be distancing like Sally from Field old doddering Aunt really May, did. but like Rosemary Harris was legitimately moving in that speech she gives to Peter. Yeah, I thought she was really good uh, when she gives him the ring back. Right, and yeah, I thought, uh, like Chase says, I think that they took this world that Raimi created and they were true to that. And I don't agree with you that those performances were bad. I, I could not. The scene where they are cooking in the kitchen and dancing. There are to silly moments. Twist, yes. It's there just, are, it, James Franco is goofy through the whole thing. It looks thing. like aliens pretending to be people. <laughs> it's, it just. Ugh. And, and I'm sorry. I could just see Sam Raimi throwing a fit. We've already established. And I blame Sam Raimi for it. I blame Sam Raimi for it more than anything. I love him. I think he's a great director. But if you're that mad, don't make the movie. Take yourself off the film. And I cannot. He was probably see, under contract. I can't see it any other way. Now, I will also agree with you that he was going after some themes that were definitely larger than anything that happened in Spider-Man Far From Home. But at the same time, the way that Marvel is putting these movies out, and it's not an excuse, but I will say the way that Marvel is putting these movies out, it was almost like Far From Home needed to be that palate cleanser after the end of Endgame. The same way sure. that Ant-Man and the Wasp was a palate you know, cleanser after Infinity War or whatever. Well, let, let me let me put this out there maybe as a marker in that I don't want to make excuses for either movie based on the production around them. Like, I don't want to make excuses for Spider-Man 3 because even though, I mean, we understand that there were a lot of, like, there were power struggles behind it. But that, doesn't, that shouldn't excuse things that are problematic with the movie. Same right. thing goes for Far From Home and however it engages with a bunch of other movies and a bunch of other marketing crap. No, like, that's the fair. movie is the movie. And as far as the performances go within Spider-Man 3, I like those performances a lot, primarily because they're interesting. They're things I don't see, and they fit within the very comic book camp sort of tone of it. They feel like something that was lifted from a Spider-Man comic. Now, I'm not going to stack it up against um, it, most of what we'd be looking at for Best Picture, because it's not trying to function no, on that level. No, 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 I think it's not sort of unfair to judge it like that. And I actually think James Franco's maybe the key to understanding how I enjoy the performances in the movie because he delights in being weird. He delights in being something oh, yeah. that's not that's quite fair. human because when I go back and I reread a lot of like the best Spider-Man comics from the eighties, um, when we get into sort of the McFarlane era, so they're, they're sort of facsimiles of people and they represent ideas generally. And in that way, Spider-Man three works as a great comic book superhero for, movie for me in a way that, none of the later Spider-Man movies really feel like a genuine adaptation of source material. Now, I don't think adapting sure, source material sure. is a marker for success, but I think that's what it's going for, and I think it succeeds. I, I totally agree that they were they were hamming it up, and Raimi was going for that. And I don't have a problem with that. It was the level that they hammed it up to. 
It just it went a little too far. But Raimi is camping. Raimi is a campy director. I agree, but he had not hit that level of camp in one or two. Eh. No, absolutely not. Definitely um, not. And I mean, this degree, I think it compensates for the fact that it the movie somewhat reads like a five hour movie that's been cut down to make it manageable. Yeah. Yes. Um, Most I, definitely. I, I think I think it's very much a compensation sort of thing. And I. I totally agree with Chase in the sense that um, this version of Peter Parker is much more true to the comic book spirit of Peter Parker. I love Tom Holland's performance as, as Spider-Man yeah, and Peter Parker. I absolutely but do. Chase is right. He may he might make mistakes, but he's walking around in a trillion dollar robot suit flying to sure. space with the event. Like, sure. There's nothing in that, like, yeah, he lives in the neighborhood, right? But there's nothing in that, in that portrayal that's familiar to Peter Parker, the character. I don't disagree. I think Tom Holland's performance has so much charisma that it saves that. Sure. I mean, and it's, just, it's something that in the moment, in the moment of viewing those movies, it did not occur to me. It didn't bother me. Yeah. But well, I get it. Also, I see it now. We had also set Spider-Man up to be that character by this time. You know, it wasn't we had the movie where he had the regular suit and stuff like that. And now he's been set up as this character. And this is what we have. So it makes sense, I guess. But I also understand what Chase is saying. It has gotten away from that guy in the pajamas swinging around, fighting the good fight for the little guy on the street. And and I'd like to push that argument a little bit further, which is to say I think it's gotten away from Spider-Man's humanity. There's a bit. And if, if we really want to compare the two, there's a bit in Far From Home that's sort of like unforgivable to me as a spider-man fan which is spider-man almost executes one of his classmates he's given tech that would make the cia piss its pants and it's treated as a gag spider-man never once has responsibility for his actions in those movies there's never a point where it feels like he should feel guilty and guilt is honestly integral to spider-man and tom holland never feels like somebody i'm angry or upset with okay but fair enough counterpoint he does save his friend after i mean he realizes the mistake i mean like if if, if you fire a gun at me and then jump in front of the bullet am i supposed to be like oh thank god look at this wonderful hero right away or should i I be like why did you shoot at me i will give the movie the credit that it was an accident yeah right he didn't like purposefully set a drone after that guy, he the the computer took him to literally whatever it happened, and then he stopped. It. However, the and idea he didn't ask that for anything, the idea that Tony would put this weapon in the hands of this child it is, a is ridiculous. I don't disagree. It's with just that. patently ridiculous. Um, in in Avengers Endgame, though, he willfully activates instant kill during the final battle uh, against Thanos's army, and I don't give a damn if they're aliens or not. Spider Man does not kill people. I saw somebody post about that yeah, online. I'm like, shit, that's right. Yeah, I'll give you that. These and are I'm, re- I'm honestly these are really okay with bad the idea people, that though. in the MCU heroes kill that they're more like soldiers. But again, he'd be a child soldier. And on top of all this, I never once get the sense that Spider-Man has screwed up in a, in a real right. way. I well, never get the sense that maybe he's broken a relationship with the person he loves most, Mary Jane, in a way that can't be reconciled or that there will always be a scar. Well, and that's the, something I love about three is that that relationship feels honest to me as somebody who's been in a marriage for years, mm-hmm. because that's how these sorts of relationships evolve. There's a fairy tale element to the Marvel stuff that honestly just was never what Stan and Steve were going for in the original stuff. There was the idea that you screw up and there are always going to be consequences. And I don't think there are consequences. 
uh, and that to me just breaks the character. Okay. All right. Like Uncle I've... Ben is essential. There have to be consequences. Yes. There yes. has to be guilt. Uncle there Ben is not even mentioned in the new movies. That's true. Yeah. None Uncle Ben is non-existent there. in the new movies. And in this one, they changed the person that killed him with somebody new. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> the bottom line is for all the flaws, Spider-Man 3 is a deeply human movie. Uh, there's guilt. There's problems. There, I mean, the flaws are what make me love it. I do in a think, way that I've always loved Spider-Man because of the flaws. And I just don't see that in any of the Spider-Man movies that have come since. I do think there was probably a much better script that we did not get. And I, and I hear what you're saying, yeah. and I think we can both agree the tribunal is not sentencing you to life in the slave <laughs> we, pits with the mold. We, we have a split decision. I still am not putting this above Far From Home. I'm not going to do that. But I hear where you're coming from. I was, And I like your argument. It makes a lot of sense. And honestly, I hadn't thought of it like that. I was pleasantly surprised by how much more I liked this movie. Oh, Joe Patrick. Uh, <laughs> compared to when it was uh, fresh. As as part of the ongoing Spider-Man saga, when it came out, I was like, uh, "No, I don't. This I don't want this. I don't want it to go this way." Uh, but here we are, you know, ten plus years later, removed from expectations, removed from obligation. It doesn't have to set up anything. It's not responsible for carrying a franchise. I was able to just enjoy it for what it was, and I thought that a lot of the people involved did some really good work. I think as long as we can all agree that Kirsten Dunn should never be allowed to sing in another movie. She was fine. We'll be fine. She was fine. Her voice is I mean, terrible. They, they, they did boot her from the musical. They did. Because her fired. voice is terrible. Right. <laughs> Chase, thank you for your time. You are free to go this time. But the tribunal will be all watching. Right. And if you have an argument that you would like to bring in front of the two-headed tribunal... I'll write an ending later. I don't fucking know. You're exhausted. Chase, <laughs> thank you for your time. Get out of here, man. We appreciate it. All right. Have a good week, guys. Thanks a lot, right, Chase. Later. You too. If you have an unpopular opinion about a comic book movie or comic book story that you would like to present, the Two-Headed Tribunal, post it on the Defenders Forum at thn.forums.net thnforums.boards.net thnforums.boards.net <laughs> and been, maybe you it's only been 10 years <laughs> and maybe, just maybe you can get away from life in the mushroom gulags with the mole man man Excelsior oh <laughs> That is it for THN 540, and 541 is already under surveillance by the Russian secret police. Joe Patrick, before we're sent to the gulags, why don't you ask these nerds a new question of the week? This week's question was submitted by Eddie via the THN forums. What universally loved book, comic, or storyline did you just find sort of meh? All right. We're going to hate on some stuff. Or not no, even hate on it. Just like, it's just like, fine, it's fine. Yeah, whatever. Like, it didn't do much for me. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, here's just your weekly note. We need new question of the week submissions. It's true. Please do it. Please go to the forums, send them to me in an email, post them on Facebook. I don't even care how you, you do make it. us come up with them, they're going to be disgusting. <laughs> if you're new to this show and you're contemplating selling us out to the KGB rather than listening to any more of this American garbage, I assure you, it is only because you have not heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive at TwoHeadedNerd.com but hosting that many episodes it ain't cheap, comrade. So we want to thank donors like our buddy 
Michael Severe. Hey, he famous. Backdoor shout out to Michael Severe. His last day at the World Herald was today. He left the World Herald. He got a new job. He's the new host of Big Red Wrap Up. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah, it was announced in April. That's fantastic. Yeah, he's Especially the since new... the World Herald's going down and flying. It's fine. We're Screw fine. Screw that blimp. Everything is fine. <laughs> My boss listens to this show. Everything is, is fine. There is nothing to see here. <laughs> Before we go, our weekly shout out goes to John's, Bunger, and Literal, and all the other fellows that showed up for this year's Bromaha Con. You know who didn't? You. This guy. What an ass. I got irresponsibly drunk with a buddy that needed help. Okay. He's going through it. And that's how you helped him? Yes. By getting irresponsibly drunk? Yes. And he's dead now, but he's not in pain anymore. And that's what's important. Wow. What a friend. <laughs> I only hope you help me like that someday. Oh, no, don't worry. Bromaha Con is an unofficial gathering of buds that get together to play a bunch of fun games for a weekend. Wooly Toots didn't go either. Wooly Toots works on weekends. No, he was in Kansas City. Well, that's okay. Carl didn't come either because he was on vacation yeah, with well, that's Carl. Look, where do you guys? Carl. Thanks for inviting us this year. I'm sorry about Matt, but <laughs> I had a blast. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just get you so drunk that you go to sleep forever. This is the Twitter Nerd signing off. That got dark real quick. <laughs>